Welcome to Software Universe On Call. I am Paul France, owner of France Games. I run SFB Online, FedCom Online, and Starfleet Warlord. Just my host, join us for a podcast every Thursday, starting at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can get a call on the phone, just dial 605-562-0444. Just follow the directions, call ID 17702. Or you can participate on the web, just go to the Talks website at www.talkshoe.com. Search for call ID 17702 and you'll find us there. Then, of course, if you want the best internet experience, go to twitch.tv, yes, twitch.tv slash SFU on call, and you'll find us there. You'll find the wonderful chat room. You'll see us broadcast live, yes, live to tape. Um, if you know what that means, you're pretty old. Um, and you will join our wonderful chat room with all those wonderful people. And, of course... If you need to contact me for any reason, my email address is sfuoncall at gmail.com. That's S-F-U-O-N-C-A-L-L at gmail.com. Also, if you want to, you can follow me on Twitter. My account there is also sfuoncall. And, of course, also I have my personal account, which is Paul Franz, and my business account, which is Franz Games. Now, of course, the lovely talk cast gets turned to podcasts available on iTunes and various other feeds around the net. Some quick news from Kind of ADB, then who's relating a news from Shapeways. Shapeways currently is having a 15% discount on all new and enhanced fine detail plastic materials, both the Clear Ultra and the Gray. Clear Ultra offers a remarkable combination of durability and flexibility with the Gray provides a solid base that showcases intricate designs. Take advantage of this exclusive offer, 50% discount. All you got to do is apply the code FDP15 at checkout. That's Frank David Paul 15 at checkout of a purchase of $5 or more, and you'll get a 15% discount on that Shapeways purchase. And from my from the understanding from ADB and my of course I'll pass that on to you, which is there is no expiration for this for this discount code. So remember the discount code if you ever go to Shapeways and want to purchase some wonderful um, miniatures using the two materials, the Clear Ultra and the Gray. One of those two. Because if you choose one of those two, then you can get a 15% discount on in checkout using that code. Um, when it comes to ADB, there's nothing, no other else news this week from them. It's been relatively quiet around there. You know, Jean's been doing her thing, and uh, they're moving forward in certain projects, which uh, they haven't been relating out to the public. And that's fine, because it's a private company, though. Obviously, we always like to hear about things and what's, what's going to happen. But moving onward and forward to the conventions, actually, we do have a tournament which is the Starfleet Battles Tournament Championship. This is the fourth year that they have done this in a row. And this year, it was Greg Henry over Tim Linden. Yes, Tim Linden. For those of you who've played um, Starfleet Battles and have been at Origins, Tim Linden is, is usually one of the few Canadians that comes down to Ohio and plays in the tournament. And so it's good to see that he's still playing. I've never heard of Greg Henry. I'm assuming he's he's native to Canada and you know the local one part of the Toronto um, group. 
it is always good to see that we still have active groups going on. Um, when we don't have, when it comes to SAP online tournaments, Sapphire Star 14 has not quite started yet. Um, Steve Petrick is waiting on Gene to tell him when it's all ready and all set to go when it comes to the next Sapphire Star tournament. Hopefully, I can do a little better this time. Um, Moving onward and forward, when it comes to the library report, not much going on there. Oh, uh, nothing going on there. Um, I do have some updates that I need to work on when it comes to the SFB, um FedCom. Again, there's some, some updates when it comes to the gunboats. I still need to um, up the, upload and make part of the library. And um, when it comes to Starfleet Warlord, something I, I don't report on very much, which is the standard game. Um, 93 is completed for for that. And it was... Give me a sec here, because I forgot to write that down. And for those of you that are right now watching me, don't watch. <laughs> Here it is. Yeah, John Jason Stewart is the winner of Standard Game 93. Yes, we're still playing some of the standard games. Second place goes to Kells Bar Barnett. And third place goes to James Jerma. So congratulations to all three for, for winning. And hopefully we will see you in the future. And I, I plan on starting a new... Starfleet Warlord standard game starting in like a week and a half and I need to send out the email ASAP because of it is um, delay. I meant to do it like last weekend but that brain fart, you know that kind of thing. So with that that is the news for this week. It's another one, little Paul friends, welcoming you to Starfleet Universe on call. And tonight, well, we've got Gary. How you doing, Gary? Uh, not too bad. How are things? Good. I'm good. And we have Doug. How you doing, Doug? Hi, I'm here. How are you guys doing? Good. Good. Don't mind me. Um. Barry said he might come, but obviously he's not here. So I'm not sure what that's all about. So let me just do one. No, I know. I can tell you later a little bit. Okay. Issues. Yeah. So there's that. Understood. Yeah, I know he, <sighs> was, he was flying to Seattle because his daughter won. Mm-hmm. Need him to come there. With, he said he, he said that he might be able to make it. That's that's the last time I talked to him. And that was after the incident with his daughter. I'm, I'm not sure you're going there. I'm not about to have it on the podcast to announce it to the world. Just know that there were. Nope. Nope. Just, nope. She asked. She asked him to come out. That's all. I, that's all I know, and that's all I'm going to say. So, with that in mind. So moving on. Moving on to something unrelated to Barry, um, and possibly hopefully something related to Starfleet Universe on call. Well, Starfleet Universe. Um, oh, and 
before Gary, before you mention it, because I'm sure you will. Yes, I did announce in the news portion of the podcast about the 15% discount at Shapeways for the um, Clear Ultra and the Gray miniatures. So, so people watching or listening, you will be able to see us, you know, see it there. <laughs> Don't mind me. I hadn't even thought of that, to be honest. That okay. Would be but uh, I did notice that it's not quite SFU related, but it's like SFU tangential. There's the um, season one, the soundtrack for season one of Star Trek Strange New World is now available on iTunes and other places like that. Mm -hmm. Oh, Strange, okay, Strange New World. I'll, of I'll, course, season three is going to be coming out. I'm sorry, I was, I was thinking of, um, uh, I think, um, Picard is the one I was thinking about. Yeah, but yeah, that would not surprise me. I, when it comes to soundtracks, it's a rare thing I actually buy a soundtrack. It's a rare thing. Obviously, um, Guardians of the Galaxy, yes, because it's, the soundtrack is basically a collection of old music, you know, old songs. Which is, they're always great, you know. And I'm always glad to hear the collection that they have and, and have it available as I listen to it. Um, the only one, what was the first one I bought a soundtrack for was Cars. And that was interesting because I went, I went to the movies to see Cars and the actual movie theater. This is before they actually had streaming. And um, I got the soundtrack for Cars. And every single time that I listened to the soundtrack, I could picture the scene in my mind of where it was in the movie, which was kind of cool because, you know, I almost could watch watch the movie in my head while I'm listening to the soundtrack. So it was kind of cool. <laughs> well, and the reason, well, the reason I got the soundtrack is because it has, Again, it's like it was like Guardians of the Galaxy. A lot of the, the songs were, you know, old songs like um, Route sixty six, you know, uh, songs like that. Where you know, I, I really enjoyed those tunes. It was, they weren't um, most of the tunes were not made directly for um, the movie. They were just mo the songs that they used as part of the movie. Well, sometimes what Marvel will do, and um, uh, they they basically will release two CDs sets, and one of the sets will be the, the music, like the like from other bands that play in the movie, and then the second disc would be the orchestral score. Oh, okay. So for example, like the Black Panther, the orchestral score is the one where you hear like the Wakanda music and so forth, and then the other soundtrack is the one where you hear the um, the the, the Vocalized songs, to put it that way. Uh, not when I say vocalized, I mean it's in like song in English, as opposed to the ones that are in also for the Wakanda music. That's what it is. There is one. Yeah, another one of the soundtracks that I actually bought was Moana. I really, I really liked the uh, music that they had on that one. That's why I, I picked that one up. Um, so if Dwayne Dwarf Johnson takes a minute from um, mm -hmm. preparing to make the live action version of the movie, then he'll say, you're welcome. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, please, please don't tell me they're going to do a live action Moana. Because. Well, the thing is that um, I guess he wants to do it while he's still young enough to look the part of Maui. Right. Well, I can understand that. The, here's the one reason I, I mentioned anything about that at all. And that is, it seems like Disney is really hot and heavy at, at this moment in time of taking a lot of their um, IP, which is based on an animated uh, movie, and make it a real a live action movie. Obviously, one of the first one that comes to mind, in my mind, is the um, um, Lion King. You know? And now they have um, the Mermaid, the Little Mermaid, is another one that, that, that they're coming out with. And of course, they had... Um, yeah, it's almost like they're out of ideas. Uh, uh, not Milan. Jeez, uh, oh, I can't remember. Uh, it was an M, though. It was um, the... M would be Mulan. M- Mulan. Yeah, Mulan. That's it. Mulan. Thank you. But, you know, I, I like the, I like the yeah, animated... I think they've run out of ideas. Yeah. Oh, agreed. <laughs> I agreed. I, I, I think that is the big issue. And, of course, I, I, my guess is that live action might actually be cheaper... <laughs> Than uh, a, a new animated movie, so not necessarily because they're still CGI heavy. Mm-hmm. Oh, agreed. For for some of these, they have to be CGI yeah, heavy. For the topic. Of course, then you got. Yeah. Of course, most of, most of the churches bankrupt on ideas. They 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 they're clueless in that respect, mm-hmm. and they're just trying to, you know, milk the old cash cows for everything they can get out of them. That's kind of it. Hmm. Like the Fast and Furious franchise? Oh, yeah, Aladdin. I forgot about that. Thanks, Chris. That was another one they made live action. Oh, well. But on the flip side, I should note that um, on the animation side of things, there's things like Star Wars Visions, which actually allow for a lot of creative voices that um, outside of the Disney's own core studios. Like, even just recently, um, season two was released, and it's got a variety of um, studios. There's even the ones that do Wallace and Gromit over in the UK. <laughs> They've got a, a short in Star Wars Visions, and uh, it's really funny, actually. But, um, so, it's, uh, I actually think it'd be really cool if Paramount decided to um, do, like, a Star Trek Visions. Like, I know that there's been the short tracks, but they're still fairly kind of like, they're like snippets of the main show that they're, they're based on. Mm-hmm. But I think it'd be really interesting to see... Um, like a broader anthology in the vein of Star Wars Visions that, like, opened the door to other time periods and other crews and stuff, whatever, mm-hmm. just to kind of um, uh, give a sense. Because actually, you think about it, like, the Starfleet Universe could do the same thing, because imagine if there was, like, a, an episode set in the FRA in Omega or an episode set during the Andromedan War or an episode set um, in the Klingon Empire or set, you know, in the Holden Galaxy or also also things. There's so many different... Um, venues and you know it's it, it, it a good way to um, instead of necessarily committing to one setting and running with it for a long time then you could test the waters by uh, offering you know 
uh, Captain's Log story-esque snippets from different areas and then see what sticks. Mm-hmm. Oh, did you, that reminds me, did you see the one po- posting on the bulletin board? Um, I forget, I forget that I did not, uh, I did not, I do not remember the person's name. I, just, I read their post, which was basically what they did is that this person just, just because they like to write and create stories and wanted to share the story that he created mm-hmm. with Steve Cole. He wrote the story, sent it off to Steve Cole, you know, just to show his, his appreciation. He didn't, ex, ex, you know, didn't, that wasn't planning on publishing or anything like that. And Steve Cole said, okay, well, that's going to be in the next captain's log. <laughs> you know, he had, he had no expectation that it actually would get published in the captain's log. But, you know, the story was good and and Steve Cole liked it. So they're going to be publishing in, in the captain's logs, which was, I, I thought was totally awesome. But as you point out, um, um, Gary, uh, to my knowledge, now I'll admit my knowledge is not perfect because I haven't read every single story in every single um, captain's log. But to my knowledge, there really hasn't been much, if any, stories based in the Omega octant when it comes to, you know, in the captain's logs. I got, do I have that correct or am I, am I misremembering? Well, the, the, the main issue is that um, uh, primary like cover story fiction is relatively restricted in terms of where and when it can be set um, because of, uh, I guess, marketing demands. Like, generally, it needs to um, involve one of the big three, like Fred King on London. Right. And it has to be at least in the modern era. So uh, that's why stories could be set like either the end or a bit later like in the Andromeda War. Um, so that's why you see a lot of general war and occasionally Andromeda War stories. Mm-hmm. So any story that's in an alternate setting like Omega, um, it might maybe become a secondary story. Right. Like say if there's a Captain's Log issue that has enough room for story number two, and it's, mm-hmm. you know, then that is probably could end up there. Right. But um, um, in theory, I guess, I think it'd be interesting if, um, like, for example, uh, I, we've, we've talked about Battletech in the past. Um, they've got a lot of going on on the fiction side of things. And so what they do is that um, uh, either in print or print on demand, actually, through Amazon or Amazon Kindle or through Catalystone uh, e-store, um, they sell either uh, like novel fiction, because um, there's, a, there's a healthy production line of that again now, uh, mostly set during the new ill clan era as well, because they're using it to try to mm-hmm. tie into the new source books that are coming out. And then there's also novellas, and uh, they usually scale the prices of them accordingly. And then what they also have is they have a magazine. It's it's like if Captain's Log was only about fiction. Like, say, for example, if there was a separate product that ADB had, mm-hmm. and it was basically uh, only the fiction part of Captain's Log rather right. than... You know the new, new rules and stuff. Although, in fairness, the the battle, the catalyst thing, does occasionally give you like a record sheet or a link to a record sheet or something like that. It's called shrapnel, and so about every two or three months, a new shrapnel comes out, and it's a short story anthology. And sometimes the stories will connect from one issue to the next. 
Now, sometimes they won't. They'll be standalone. Some of them, they'll be set in the brand new era, the era of the Ultraman. And some of them will be set maybe at the beginning of the age of the battle net. And some will be set in the deep periphery or um, set in all sorts of places. And actually, there's a collection of short stories called the Fox Patrol, about a, about a mercenary group called the Fox Patrol. And that actually group got spun off into its own novella. They got uh, consolidated together and released separately because of the, I guess people wanted to get them that way. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's basically, it's allowing for windows into the universe that, you know, might be difficult to, you know, put together as a full-length novel. But if, if enough people like read it and think, hey, I want more of that, then it basically opens the door for more things to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it'd be interesting if um, there was a product like that that uh, would basically encourage people to... Um, uh... Oh, well, also one other thing as well is um, lead stories in Captain's Log. They tend to either, in my, by, my, by my experience of reading them, or, um, they tend to either need to be, uh, with the exception of... Um, Historical articles like the history of the Andromeda War, Catalog 49, and a lot of the actual story fiction ones, they need to either be based on a pre existing scenario or they need to have a new scenario created to, to be the play aspect of it. So, um, like for example, uh, in Catalog 54, the lead story is based on the, uh, the infamous Return of the Darwin scenario, uh, but then some other uh, lead stories um, have had brand new uh, scenarios written up either by the, the, the person who wrote the story or by ADB themselves in order to uh, show the actual uh, in-game aspect of things. Right, right. Which is always, the, I think that that is the most difficult part. Well, if, if there, okay, obviously, okay, let's back up for a moment. When it comes to being the primary story for captain's log that that's kind of a requirement for that captain's log so i have it, have it as the primary article because you have to have a scenario and so forth it has to have some some actual starfleet battles in it at the very least or at least some fne aspect to it you know some gameplay that can be can be taken that basically the players can then be part of the story or to, become a character in the story, you know, which is, um, which is always the, the, the key thing when it comes to, just remind me back to baseball. Um, and that is to baseball, the biggest thing is not the wins and the losses to the baseball fans, you know, to have, have a certain team. Yeah, the wins and losses matter. But to, overall things when it comes to baseball most of the best things are the stories that can be told about a player and possibly about a team usually it's about a single player and what their story is you know when it comes to whether it is how they started playing in high school and they went to college and depending on you know, any difficulties that they ran into things that they overcame because that, that's that's part of a good story about a player, you know, um, or in the case of, um, 
uh, who was that? It was, three, it was three moves ahead. I was listening to one of the podcasts from Three Moves Ahead, and the one thing that was the the person who is one of the um, reviewers. There, the one thing they're always about, always talking about, is the story that it creates because of um, when you play a game, you're you're involved in a if. It can engage your mind and make you part of the story. Then this person really thinks it's a better game overall because then you can, you can, you know, you can pretend to being that person and play act. You know, even even if in the case of some of these some of these games where. They're, they're they're nameless people, but if you, if you can actually start naming, like um, if you have a, a short, a small number of units, you can start naming your units. And okay, well, this is unit Alpha Strike or whatever, whatever you want to call, you know, call that that those units. They become more personal, and you have a more attachment to those people and have a more enjoyable time. And you can take that and make that part of a of a story about the game itself. Well, I'd actually, um, I think that, I mean, all the way back to the original series, and um, like also with both franchise track and with the Starfleet universe, um, to a very real extent, um, the ship is the character. So, uh, mm-hmm. especially more in the SFU, because so much of the material is basically uh, left in print, is about the ship rather than the, the people crewing them. Not least because of ATP's licensing, because they can't use the characters from the original series anyway. But um, uh, I suppose in, in baseball terms, if you like, if you're a Boston Red Sox fan, Fenway Park is probably the real is a real star, oh. more than any human being has ever well, played it, there. Well, yeah, for the top or agreed. For, or when it comes to or, Fen- you know, so it's um, yeah, Fenway Park can be the villain, or it can be the hero. In in the baseball story, play at Fenway Park. Well, what I mean is that um, the, fact, the fact that Fenway Park, the story of the park itself, the fact that it actually still exists and has gone through so many um, iterative changes, and it's seen so many things. Like, for example, it's seen the, the color barrier broken, and it's seen the evolution of Boston around it. And it's actually seen so many of uh, the ballparks from its era be tore down, or, uh, both in Japan and in North America. Like, there's... there's um, and how, like, there's, you know, there's basically kind of, like, uh, more than the stories of the players that play there, which, of course, are important. It's the story of the building itself and how it's become uh, beyond the day-to-day of, like, a, a team traveling there and winning or losing, well, or the home team winning or losing. Well, it's here, the fact that it's basically become this uh, part of the, uh, the baseball world. Oh, so agree. There's, there's not too many other stadiums, but yeah. So. Yeah, but the, the thing is, I think that's probably more closer to um, the experience that a lot of people might have with um, uh, ships, like especially in the SFU. Um, they're more than the crews that fly them, because especially for ones like within the SFU, like certain ships, like survey cruisers and so forth or whatever, they can be in service for decades. Right. And so, oh, understood. Uh, there's but, so much turnover in terms of the crews that serve on them. 
Hmm? But the ships themselves, they're the ones that you usually see headlining an SFC scenario or a sidecom scenario. And they're the ones that go on the cover. Like, I can... There's very few at Captain's Logs that actually have a person, especially in the more recent era, because there's lots of CG art that gets put onto a cover. There's not that many of them that actually show uh, an individual person. I think there's a there's a Vulcan guy who's on the cover of, I think, BL-46, maybe? But the story was about him um, trying to prevent the Romulans from, you know, who had captured his ship, but trying to prevent him, prevent the Romulans from using it um, to sabotage the Federation thing, whatever. And... So, but most of the time, uh, it's just the ship by itself that you see either like by itself or in a battle or whatever. So, um, yeah, I kind of feel like, you know, uh, that's probably, you know, so it'd be interesting to see how, how this new story pans out. But um, I, uh, I haven't really heard much about it, but I wouldn't be surprised if, um, if it is set on the ship. Then, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, maybe it'll be set on a starbase, we'll see, because... comments on on that number one there's a, little, there's a big difference in my mind between a starship and Fenway Park because Fenway Park has a lot of history based in it and it's great to know some of the history as part of, of background of, of events that occurred at at Fenway Park versus a ship a ship, you can personify a ship itself. Whether it is just purely the actions of the ship in concert with other ships and have them, have that, again, personification of those ships where, you know, they're, they're fighting this great battle. Now, uh, if you look closer, don't, you know, it's not... The ships that are doing it, it's the men or and women that are actually on the ships, you know, performing their, their duties to have the ship, which is an anim, inanimate object, to do such things. So there's a, there's a, per, there's people behind it. Now, as I said, we can have personify those ships. In the case of, again with Starfleet battles, we have a ship that has a long history. The thing is, it's a living, as I said, as a personification, is a kind of a living, breathing thing that moves and fights, and sometimes is sad or depressed, or you know, and you can you can add this personifications to a ship, but in the case of Fenway Park, you can't do that. Except for in the case, as I said, in the case of a story, of maybe of a game, or or something like that, where you 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 personify that thing versus the history of that thing, um, which is uh, which is in my mind a big difference. Now, when it comes to um, Starfleet universe stories, I think there's a huge, huge, huge. Um, 
in my mind, a huge part missing from Starfleet Universe history altogether. Now, because most of the time we, uh, because it's based, it's a no, the stories usually have to be tied into the game itself. Because of we, we always have. See, here's the thing: BattleTech versus Starfleet Battles. There's quite a bit of difference. The main difference, in my mind, is that licensing. When it comes to Starfleet Universe, you have to be very, very careful about any stories you tell, anything, any IP that you create based on the Starfleet Universe. Have it so that it will not bring up the ire of Paramount itself, which is different than <laughs> which, is, which is which is different than BattleTech, where they own their own IP. And they won't have the same issues of a of a third party coming in and going, bonk. No, you can't do that. You can't have that story because that's our IP. You know, because if you're if the story based around the universe which is BattleTech, you know, that's well, uh, well actually, um, it doesn't run into the problem. There are two things that you know. Yeah, with with uh, being Sorry. a coexistence with Star Trek. So, so go. Well, the thing is that actually Catalyst don't own BattleTech because um, when the original Fastware closed its doors, um, the IP to BattleTech got splintered to a bunch of different um, companies based on the form of media that a BattleTech product can be. So, for example, Microsoft have the right to make video games based on BattleTech, and um, there's some other company, I don't know who it is, that has the right to do, like, if there was ever going to be a TV show or a movie based on Battletech. And Catalyst themselves, uh, the, the rights to make Battletech the tabletop game or the pen and paper mm -hmm. RPG, they're technically, they had been owned by Tops, the, you know, the playing card company. Mm -hmm. um, but now I believe they're owned by Fanatics, um, the guys who do, like, mm -hmm. baseball caps and stuff. Right. And so Catalyst Game Comp Labs, they actually cash a check every few months to the IP holder. But most of the time, the IP holders, basically, they don't really care too much about the intellectual property side of, of running Battletech. They're very hands-off. So they just say, mm -hmm. we trust you guys. You know what you're doing. You've had a successful Kickstarter and so forth. So I guess for a company like Tops or the Fanatics, that Battletech is, even after the success of the Kickstarter, Kickstarters rather, um, it's pocket change compared to what they do. So financially, like unless they do something really egregious, then they don't need to worry. And for the last 15 years or so, they have not to worry. However, I should also note that historically, Battletech did run into an IP issue in terms of the unseen mechs, because um, some of the original designs that were for Battle Mechs have been right. uh, used uh, based on different um, anime series. Mm -hmm. and oh, time, Matt, Matt Cross, I remember. <laughs> it was difficult for them to do their homework. Yeah. It was difficult for them to do their homework back then in the days before Wikipedia and so on. So I, I, I'd still say that back then FASA were acting in good faith, even though they didn't necessarily have their ducks lined up, which, of course, you know, doesn't necessarily excuse what happened. But they believed that they had signed with the people who had the rights. But then even in Japan, the rights to those uh, designs took decades to work out because it was, it was basically, I guess, the early days in terms of um, 
what international IPs look like when you, you when you bring them across the Pacific and who gets X, Y, Z and so forth. And mm-hmm. what happens if you don't have this all sorted out beforehand? But I suppose it was kind of a learning process for concern. But anyway, nowadays, the, the various rights holders for Battletech are beyond this because um, various uh, court cases got settled, resolved, and I won't say settled, but they got resolved. And um, also, uh, Catalyst and other companies, they actually made a point of going back to the original on scene and completely retconning them. So there are entirely new designs that were drawn up from the beginning to represent how the individual battle mech functions in Battletech, but do not carry any of those um, uh, IP-esque design features that are from the original thing. So, so yeah, it's it's kind of like how... um, like I guess if there was ever a nightmare scenario where ADB uh, couldn't use the original the designs from the Star Trek technical manual, I had to kind of like reinvent them to work with the SSDs or something. Um, thankfully, that's not the case. But um, it's um, yeah, basically, it's kind of like um, like Battletech has basically had to uh, like they've actually been relatively fortunate in the sense that um, relatively early on in Battletech's history. They invented the clans, and they invented mm-hmm. the clan battlenecks. So, regardless of whether you like the clans as a faction, or like any, or as a as a concept, or any particular clan as a faction, you can appreciate the Timberwolf, or in the Dark Age era, the Savage Wolf, or those kind of mechs, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, um, they were actually able to lean in to uh, in native to battletech designs from a relatively early early stage and uh, capitalize on them even in the eras when the unseen were unseen. So, um, but even to this day and stuff, I mean, there's still people that, um, like if you buy the Alpha Strike box set, uh, I still need to get that, but uh, <laughs> it's, um, it comes with like five clan mechs and uh, eight inner sphere mechs. And the Timberwolf is one of them, I believe. So mm-hmm. um, it's basically now they're able to make the best of one and a half worlds. I won't say the best of both worlds, because that's a paramount thing. But also, um, they're basically able to lean into the re-scene um, in order to give the original uh, bottleneck record sheets and Alpha Strike unit cards uh, life on the tabletop. But also, they still have the clan and other uh, indigenous to Battletech mech designs that they've been able to revise and finesse over time. And... Uh, you know, make use, of, you know, leverage those going forward as well. So, but uh, yeah, so basically, just um, uh, I guess Battletech itself has um, maybe less so than in the past, but they have, they do have a certain degree of um, third-party uh, considerations that they have to keep in mind, um, and also rules that they lay down. So, for example, if you look at the back of any particular Shrapnel magazine. It has a guideline because they want to. They want people to contribute stories, um, but they're very clear in terms of like, this is the range of stories that we want, and this is um, how we want you to go about submitting them. So they do that. Um, I guess to make sure that um, any new story that's being submitted is IP compliant. So, but the, I guess the difference is that logistically speaking, they've got um, a bigger team 
in place than ADD has, where everything has to go through the seats, I suppose. So, um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, so they are, they're in a pretty good place. And, uh, you know, in the future, it'd be great if um, the Star Trek universe could find a way to get itself in a similar place. Well, I think good. The, the, the thing is that uh, they do have a very narrow line they have to walk with the IP stuff because of the issues with Paramount. Yeah. But I, I couldn't see why they wouldn't do something for you know the Omega Sector except that maybe they want to cross their T's and dot their I's and you know make it a play to the majority audience that they have which is primarily not about that particular product but about the original classic universe stuff um, and, and when you were starting this part in the very beginning Paul you were talking about the stories about the players and everything versus in, in context with say the story of a particular park and Really, when it comes right down to it, in baseball, my this is just my opinion. It's a much more relatable thing because you see the players. You don't see just the park as a thing from the outside or just the park itself. But you see actual people right there, and knowing the stories about those people makes it much more relatable. It much more humanizes the experience of participating with the game, which is people driven but in a star star trek universe thing where well i should say starfleet universe thing where it seems to be ship driven well that's because the game itself is a ship driven game it's right. not really about the people on board the ship i mean a lot of times you go back to the analogies of the world war ii stories that you can read about people in their experiences of surviving the war or you read it on a different scale where it's about the different units that participated whether that unit is a ship part of the squadron or a battalion or a brigade division you know commander eisenhower's story versus private snuffy's story of living <laughs> the war uh, and and it, it's really kind of like uh it's it, kind of a in the eye of the beholder interpretation but i think if you really want to see uh, more creative stuff because from adb in the fiction department you, you have to show them a demand for it and how they could do it without running afoul of paramount i mean i i, I try talking to them about doing some um getting permission from them to use the SFU stuff to do indie film stuff like 20-something years ago. I don't remember, know if you remember this or not, Paul. We may have talked about it during one of our trips to Origins uh, when I was heavily doing the indie film stuff way back mm -hmm. in the day. Right. And they just wouldn't go for it. And, that was pri and I can understand why. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was primarily they just didn't want the hassle of Paramount right. coming down their, their backs. And yet at the time, there was also band group because of the sudden proliferation of, you know, high quality digital 
production stuff coming down into the you know open market mm-hmm. there were there's literally groups of fans making fan fiction films and series using the old Star Trek as a, uh, a setting right that eventually that's a whole saga in itself about Paramount going after those guys and how they ended up settling their disputes and so on and so forth. You could probably spend a couple hours talking about that, but I, hmm. I don't have that information at in my hand while the, uh, my internet's being choked nine ways to Sunday. <laughs> Yar. Oh yeah. I didn't mention that. I'm sorry. The, uh, I, I'm not coming in on the pot on, on the chat room tonight because there's, the other week, Sweetie decided to add all the household devices to my T-Mobile connection, and T-Mobile said, hey, you guys just exceeded your monthly bandwidth, which is a problem I haven't had in a year plus of using it. But once she added the kids to it and everything else to it, I'm like, oh, my God. So, yeah, I can't even load Facebook on my machine. So, that's funny. Wow. But I can play WoW because of how the setup is done. Which I'm, you know, the technical side of that sort of thing. Um, it just, it just kind of, and I understand it, and it still amazes me that I can't load Facebook, but I can play WoW with the choking that they're doing on the bandwidth. So, yeah, that okay. So makes that, that was my sense two cents on the topic. To a certain, the choking, to a certain degree, it does. So it's because of the protocols involved when it comes to. Um, Web, you know, doing webs, webs things like Facebook versus WoW, which uses purely UDP packets to have it so as fast as possible. Yeah, I know. So, yeah, I, I thought about explaining how this works to my son, but I didn't want to put him to sleep. <laughs> He's a bed. Yeah. So, so actually, um, when it comes to like things like World War Two, is um, a lot of it kind of varies depending on the theater because um, like if it's a mostly land-based thing then yes there's individual tanks maybe like a like a t-34 or sherman or might have a, a story to it but where they're not quite so much because um they guess i only have a certain shelf life usually um but when it comes to say the pacific theater like there's probably you know no story on the naval side that's bigger than the cv6 enterprise and like the actual beyond the fighter the pilots who flew off it and the 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 crew and the crew, the crewmen who kept the thing going the actual ship itself uh had uh i guess a, a legacy in and of itself and so forth so i mean it's no accident that the name enterprise keeps showing up no doubt of the Soviet universe but uh uh, except in passing, just to say that there is a ship that's called Enterprise. That's as far as we're talking about it. But um, yeah, so um, but I suppose actually to look at it from a different perspective, because um, like say for example, uh, I could have sworn that there was um, there was talk about years ago anyway about some sort of uh, product designed to specifically to support the Prime Directive role-playing game, which of course is primarily character-driven. Um, I suppose unless you're you're in an empire where the ships themselves have AI or they're like living beings, so they create a character. But um, 
yeah, so like uh, in Prime Directive, it's usually like a uh, like you play as you know a non-ship scaled being, like a humanoid or whatever, and um, you can tell stories like spy stories or diplomatic stories and so forth. That's um, like as a prime team, even of course, head the name. Um, that you couldn't really do uh, if the game, if the the story is uh, primarily tied into either Federation commander or Starfleet battles. So um, that would actually be maybe um, the kind of venue that um, would open the door for more stories that need not necessarily be tied to uh, the fate of a particular ship. So. Um, I suppose the Battlefleck equivalent would be um, like Battlefleck has two uh, role-playing games running on right now, and I forget their names. But yeah, so basically, uh, in as much as there as there would be a game component to a story that's being published, um, you wouldn't necessarily have to write it so that you could play the mech combat or aerospace combat in Battlefleck or Alphastrike. You can also submit a story that's uh, would in, if you were to play it at all, you would basically uh, draw up the characters in the RPG scale, and you would play it out that way. So, um, yeah, I mean, so it, it'd be interesting to see like uh, if such a project ever got off the ground with ADB, um, that that would basically give people a, a more of a uh, a room to be able to actually get published, writing stories showing the the lived inside of the universe. That wouldn't necessarily oh, be here's, tied to. Here's, here's a thought for you, uh, and it goes to the um, going to the World War II Pacific Theater analogy. Uh, actually, yeah, there's a lot of stories that are not necessarily about a ship in particular, like the Enterprise. I mean, you know, I, a lot of those ships have very storied histories in that particular war, but you could also have other things in the Pacific Theater conflict that would relate to the war itself like uh you know remember the tv series baba black sheep you know mm-hmm. patty boynton squadron story you know even though a lot of that is fictionalized you know there's that you had the easy company experience uh, that hbo did for uh the you know european theater but you also have things like uh pt 109 you know the uh the little Kennedy tragedy uh, or heroism, depending on your point of view on reading it and all the actual history behind it. But you've got tons of tons of stories that are, you know, people driven that you can, you know, read, watch, learn about through different, a lot of different media. I mean, when I, used to watch cable TV. I was kind of a history channel junkie before it became all about aliens. Mm. <laughs> and yeah, you get the general idea there. There's there's a, a wide breadth of stories that they could touch. It's a matter of scale. And the focus, though, of the SFU is not really the individual personal side of it. I mean, when when they do a thing about a story about, you know, an assault on a starbase from the perspective of some of the characters in the starbase, 
mm-hmm. then that's a different thing. But they're not telling that story from the gameplay side. And I think that's kind of where if, if you make it a requirement that it has to be within the gameplay side, that makes it very difficult. And you're really going to be focused on, okay, this is this ship. This is how it reacts, how, how the how the whole thing is run during that operation versus hey, look, here's the guys over in phaser bank four that just where the thing just got exploded and how do they deal with surviving that experience? You know, that's, it's just kind of a, kind of a thing where they have to be really careful and, and I'm not sure if they want to explore that that much. So, but I, I can't speak for them. Because, you know, I don't work for them and they're not around the corner from me. We don't talk. Oh, understood. Um, but uh, at the same time, I th- even if you can't have, because of po- possible issues, a series of stories about um, people, you know, in, in non-combat situations, you know, is, is that it's not about... Um, a, a battle, you know, if it's just something about um, people. Now, this is I'm not I'm not what I'm thinking of is more of along the lines of fan fiction that are short stories about you know the, the you know this group of people or whatever. And it tells it tells a, a small a, a short little story about being a being a part of a crew. You know whether it is being an engineer in, in in the you know the back corners of the starship that people that usually don't go visit, you know thing things like that, where um, I think there are opportunities that I think are being missed by ADB for for the smaller stories to come out. I understand that most of what ADB is about is the larger story. It's a it's about the rise and fall of, or maybe not. That's going a little far to say the rise and fall, but the um, history of these large empires, you know, and how things change, how how history goes along, and that that the basically the bigger picture versus the small picture. Okay, about this. A farmer on this distant colony planet trying to get, you know, have it so that feeding his family, you know, and, and how you know <clears throat> deals with whether it's some local stupid captain at a local garrison, you know, that yeah, the garrison is trying to protect them, but you know, at the same time they're being jerks or or whatever about you know, what what the farmer needs. You know, it's supposed to be a colony, the, the, the Federation or whatever empire, whatever you're talking about, whatever. Um, when you're trying to deal with, you know, you know the, their, the reason why they they encourage people to be colonists usually is to expand their little fiefdoms, their their empires. You know, and they say, well, okay, we have people here. Oh, that that that. Now we're we're that much more, that bigger, that much bigger. You know, because that's that's now our planet, that kind of thing. Well, 
Um, I think that, again, that ties back into um, uh, being able to leverage prime directives more in the future right. that has been managed to this point. Because right now, the different prime directive source books, like prime directive federation, Plano's Robinson, and so forth, most of them have at least one or two stories in themselves. There's actually, um, I, wanna, I think that in the, cause in the Romulan one, um, there's one of the, the planets that's on the far side of the Empire that actually has these um, these three people called the Dionians. But the three people, they're, they're kind of in the, the Stone Age. But they also really hate humanoids. So uh, when the Romulans tried to colonize our planet, um, the, the three people tried to eat them. So there's like a, a story that they had about like that. But um, in a broader sense, um, like for example, uh, in the Federation, the way that the SSU tells it, um, I, I find the most interesting ships to be the Galactic Survey Cruisers and the other ships that are used in the Second Fleet uh, to uh, basically do uh, what the, uh, the main kind of onus of the original series and other series was, was to uh, explore worlds that are new and strange. And uh, so it actually even says in Prime Director Federation that um, crew beings who are going to Starfleet Academy, um, there are those who basically sign up because they want to protect the Federation, or they want to basically, uh, you know, keep the Klingons or Rodmans or Andromedans or wherever it is that they So they gravitate towards, they tend to be assigned to the various numbered fleets that are on the map. So you go to the third fleet if you're facing the Klingons, you go to the sixth fleet if you're facing the Rodmans and so on. But you go to the second fleet, the, the people who get assigned to the second fleet are the ones that tend to be more the ones who sign up to Starfleet because they want to, they see that ex exploration is the highest calling um, of the service. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it also helps the fact that, unlike the Klingons, for example, because the, the Klingons, they only get access to new uh, unexplored territory if the Lyrans agree to license it to them. Whereas the Federation has the off-map survey area where they can send those survey ships. And there's a whole bunch of unexplored planets that uh, are not part of another major empire. So um, uh, they have that arena where stories about uh, first contacts or about uh, prime directives, uh, like the actual, the law of the prime directive, uh, obligations, or dealing with Orion pirates, or dealing with you know, XYZ. Um, now, it does eventually become an arena of conflict because there's more, a part of the Andromeda more spot out there. So, but um, that basically is an example of a, a venue where um, more of the um, discovery and uh, exploration side of the setting, which still does exist, even though um, SFB and FedCom tend to be more focused on the the combat side, of course. Right. Um, but it's more those are the kind of places where you can tell more uh, prime directive stories and still say that, yes, they do tie into a game because here's a copy of Ghost Prime Directive, here's the way that you draw up your character, and here's where, you know, you could, like, in theory, you could basically write up a, a scenario 
uh, book and say, you know, here's the GM, here's the stats for this new species you haven't encountered before, and here's this new phenomenon that you might run into, like a space monster or uh, uh, maybe a pre-warp civilization or some new creature that, you know, um, uh, eats your crew or something like that, whatever. Or like, there's like all these kind of things. And so um, you'd be less tied to the need to say, oh, so you're making first contact. All right, well then, you know, here's 50 pages of rules to, on the SSE so that you can play as that empire because um, you have to, because you don't have to basically be tied to the fact that um, uh, you have to be able to represent it in the SSE as a common form. So, but um, although actually, I will double back to Omega in just one second because I should point out that um, um, there are actually a number of factions in Omega, like the Irodani, for example, the Blosco, and even the, the, the pirate ship that represents the FRA. Mm -hmm. They have tons of uh, scope for uh, exploring and you know sneaking around, pirate, uh, doing all sorts of things um, that lie beyond the borders of their home empire. So it's because, I mean, there's, there's not so much in the way of neutral zones, like, orders are much more porous over there, and there's plenty of unoccupied territory, and of course, even within those territories, I'd say, there's likes of the Irodani, who, um, I mean, the whole way that they get into the galaxy is to travel through the galactic barrier, and either act as, you know, contracted to an empire, to another empire for a certain while, or maybe their mission is to explore a phenomenon, or hunt down a space dragon, or, you know, transfer technology, or make first contact, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So there's tons of opportunities um, on the Prime Directive side to write up stories about individual quest sites or whatever. But there's also ways to basically tie it back to Starfleet Battles or FedCon if you want to, because, you know, maybe some chapters of the, of the, the quest saga do include running into the Zosman Marauder pirates. And so here's a scenario where you're fighting off the Zosman, or there's a scenario where you're hunting the Andromeda, because especially after the Andromeda War, the Iridani were, you know, they wanted, they launched, they were launching dedicated crusade quests against the Andromedans. Mm -hmm. And so that would be a, that would be a prominent feature for them going forward. And then there's all X, Y, Z and so forth. So um, I think that one of the great things about Omega is that it's so much more open because you don't have the big neutral zones, you know, plunked down on the federal right. parts down that Right. The, 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 the borders aren't border. that well defined. They're, all, they're very fluid in the Omega Octant, when it comes to the history, they're, they're constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And um, so you do have um, much more of a, an opportunity to go out and you know, find new things, um, especially after the, the Andromeda War, because, you know, you've got Operation Unity basically establishing an ongoing link with the Magellanic Cloud. And the LMC, of course, is still recovering from the Andromeda occupation. So there's there's tons of stories that could be told in terms of um, you know, scooting around that place. And then also, once the, the survey ship Zakharov travels to Omega from the LMC, that itself opens a new window of opportunity. So, um, but part of that is basically um, uh, that that time period is is not all that well supported in game terms, but you can still lay some of the groundwork in terms of saying, you know, um, these are the broad strokes of what happened, and these are some of the individual crew members that, that are, are doing these things. And 
here are some species that are not necessarily tied to the TV show. So you can say, oh, the captain of that ship is a giant tree. And the captain of that ship is a big robot. You know, it's like you basically have the opportunity to um, have Alpha and Omega meet in a way that can't really be done uh, during the general war. But again, the venue for telling those kind of stories is something that would really work in pri- through prime directors um, to a much mm-hmm. greater extent than they do at present. So right. that's one reason why I'm hoping that um, more forward mention can be made on the prime director front um, in terms of like new source books and um, new uh, games. Because there's always a thing talk for over a decade now in terms of trying to get prime directors converted to Mongoose Traveler. And then um, there's possibility of new source books like uh, for the Goings or for the Tholians and so on. So I believe the Goring one would include the Paradians. And so there's an Omega adjacent thing there. Because I suspect the Omega Paradians wouldn't be in the book, but you could leverage the material that's in the, the Goring book for the Paradians into a future Omega setting. Right. And so, yeah, I do think that there's some. Um, I think it's less about the, the potential for stories, which does, I, I do believe exists. Mm-hmm. It's more the logistics in terms of finding the, the right channels to be able to say, get those stories out there and to encourage people to read them and then also to write more of their own. Right, so, right. Well, that's, um, the, that's the whole idea of fan, fan fiction is to have people excited about the universe, what they're writing about. Is that, that's the big thing there. And that's why I, I'm not sure... I know that, okay, I don't know, but I feel like ADB and Steve Cole are concerned about how people writing fan fiction for SFU. Now, I'm pretty uh, pretty confident in saying that I don't think that Paramount is that concerned about people writing fan, you know, this fan fiction, which they're not making money on, that which is the critical part. Is that there's there no dollar dollar bill because in my mind I think a lot, some of the stuff that was done when it comes to YouTube and Star Trek IP, most part Paramount didn't care until money was involved. As soon as money starts exchanging hands, that's when they they <laughs> want to say okay wait a minute uh, that's ours. No one else can get make money off that except for us. Which is why um, I think that, um, like a future uh, product that, um, like a product line rather, that leveraged prime directors because ADB would still be the ones publishing it. They'd still be the ones vetting it mm-hmm. to make sure that the stories being told are um, SFG compliant. Not right. just in the sense of not upsetting Paramount, but in the sense that they, they work with the internal logic of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, so and so yeah, but yeah. So basically, that's because I say that's that's what Shrapnel does, and that yes, it opens all these windows, but there's still the underlying logic of the inner sphere and the periphery that new authors have to abide by. But um, I mean, it's the same thing for historical fiction. Like, I mean, unless you're specifically writing a time travel story, you're writing. A story oh, I hate those. During, like, the war. Yeah, <laughs> like if you're set, if you're well, if you're doing a story that's set like during the War of eighteen twelve or through the um, the Meiji Restoration or in the First World War or something, well then you can't have anyone using a cell phone. So, I mean, 
so basically it's, it's the same it's the same kind of like consistency that you have when you have a um a, a universe with the kind of uh, internal consistency that ADB is mandated to follow and which Catalyst follows for Battletech where I mean you can't have like if you set a story that's during the early years of Starflight leave it from Earth like into the inner well that later became the inner sphere I mean you can't have a, a clan battle next to it. like each of each unit has to be consistent to the era and setting that it's, that it's established so um, yeah but yeah so but given that in mind, I do think that, um, you know, there's, um, it's more, a lot of those cases just basically getting the word out there because um, um, it came to mind recently that um, a lot of the people who get into the universe at present, um, they there's like, I guess their view of it maybe depends on what their entry ramp is. Like, there are those who have basically been playing since early days of SSD, um, before Fedcom existed or before Prime Directive existed. And back then, basically, the, the game had only developed in a certain extent and so forth. Like, you know, the real focus was, I mean, it still is, but it was more exclusively on, like, the Fed playing on one and stuff and on a certain time period. So, like, before the early years and before X and so on. Um, but then for me, I came in through the Starfleet Command video games. So for me, it was actually the ISC, as they were portrayed in Starfleet Command 2, that was basically what made me want to get interested into the SFU. So from the beginning, um, my on-ramp for the SFU was through a non-TV empire. And it was basically, uh, coincidentally, <laughs> it was the same uh, uh, non-TV empire that... Um, is, is actually made more um, part of the broader Alpha Occident in Module C6 because um, historically they set up a general war, but then um, if you have the Paravians still as an existing empire, then suddenly it's a different equation. And as it turns out, of course, there's actually an ISC colony that's in the Federal Republic, so they actually get leveraged into Omega as well. So um, for me, it's, it's always been much more kind of... Um, about the sides of the universe that aren't necessarily direct, uh, reflective, reflective of what was uh, inherited from the television show or from the Star Trek technical manual. Important as those are, and I'm not saying they're not, but um, so I suppose it'd be like in Battletech where, you know, if a person came in and they came in because of the Dark Age clicky game, or they came in because of the clans, relative to those who were loyal to the inner sphere powers and the inner sphere technology from the beginning, and to a specific era of Battletech that's um, a time period that is still supportive, but it's not necessarily the era that is driving the, the, the present-day narrative forward. So, yeah. But I'd like to think that both the SFU and Battletech are, are big and broad enough so that the Venn diagrams of these different groups uh, is, are healthy enough to keep them both going for the foreseeable future. I agree. I agree. I, I, I think they're both large enough that that um, they have healthy growth, you know, and you know, as, as I said, I think I think the I would like I would really like to see more fiction in, you know, in the Star Trek universe that that wasn't necessarily um, purely combat oriented. 
anyhow, I think. Well, well I look forward uh, to reading. A thought on that. A quick, quick thought on that. Yeah. If, you, if that's really what you want to see, is just ask them to to set up maybe a nice little conference call with a bunch of people and discuss what would work for them and ask them to put a call out for it then with guidelines if they wanted to publish in an a, in a anthology or if they wanted to set up like uh, a bunch of stories in a row that they could have for the next several dozen, you know, captain's logs, whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. Obviously, someone would need to approach them to see if what is their tolerance for fan fiction, you know, in, in that regard. Because I don't, I'm not sure anyone's actually asked them about, you know, fan fiction when it comes to the Starfleet universe. I think you could probably find some in their old billboard BBS stuff. So it's just a, it's such a niche thing and their publication is not that huge. Like I'm, I'm sure they probably have some room requirements for it, for the publishing within say the captain's log thing, but I don't know if they would be interested in a, um, in a separate product, so to speak. I mean, when if you look at where their operations are going at this point in time, so there's that. I mean, that's something that would be an interesting conference call, I think, to ask them about. So there, there's a thought. Mm-hmm. Well. I mean, the logistics, just bear in mind that, um, think about, like, the miniatures. Like, there used to be a day when there weren't all that many miniatures. They were all in metal. The quality of them varied depending on the production of them or how the metal get warped and so forth. And if you basically had a time machine, sorry, Doug, if you had a time machine and went back and said, hey, there's going to be 4,000 uh, Starfleet Universe or whatever, so many thousands of uh, individual entries there are now on the ADP Shapeway storefront. Um, they all print great. <laughs> you can get them in all the different scales that you dreamed about back in the day, like elite scale and so forth, whatever. Um, they just thought you were crazy. But now it's it's there's so much there. Like there's so many opportunities that people have to be able to um, get all sorts of different varieties of ships and empires that I mean I, I thought mm-hmm. that there'd never be an opportunity for. Um, that they they're there now. People can go out and buy them, and you know. Um, so, yeah, but being part of it is basically because uh, A, Shapeways exists as a platform to print them, and B, um, there's a group of 3D model- modelers who can actually are motivated enough to um, and knowledgeable enough to be able to actually do them properly to ADB specifications. So, um, but yeah, so basically um, the idea required the, the logistics to be able to make it work. So um, I, I, I wonder if it's the same here, but maybe um, once the logistics are in place to enable like maybe a dedicated prime directive magazine or some other venue outside of Captain's Log that 
opens the door for more more fiction overall and also more varieties of fiction then that might basically lead to um, a much healthier uh, way forward than the current setup. So, and in that case, Paul, I definitely uh, wonder what's your, your story about a self-terrorian worker you know, <laughs> working away at the, his, his console is going to, how that, how that, that, that yarn is going to pan out. Oh, the Saltorians could be a story that's told about a galaxy far, far away long ago. <laughs> and the rebellion. Oh, wait. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. The mouth of the Never mind. Mm. Yeah. Or the lucky rabbit, if you want to make it real deep. Cut. <laughs> mm. Well, I think with that, I think it's... You were saying? Uh, I think with that, we're going to wrap up for the evening. It's been going long and strong, and I'm starting to putter out myself. Um, and I still need to wrap this thing up tonight. So... Anyhow, Gary, it's been wonderful having you around. Don't make it, don't, don't be a Thank stranger. Have a good night, everybody. Okay, you too. Bye. Hey, Doug. Always, always awesome to have you around. And hey. Hopefully, you can work out the issues with your internet. Uh, yeah. We can talk about that after you wrap up. Wrap up the show. Okay. If you want to talk for a few minutes, real quick. Sure. Sure. Okay. Have a good night. Thanks. So, had a nice evening of the talking about fiction, about stories, about you know how the challenges of of writing stories, you know. Versus, in my mind, versus Battlethick. I think Battlethick has an easier way of it than um, Star for the Universe. And I understand that currently the the big there's a big difference at the moment with Battletech, who is really I'm not I'm going to say thriving because I can't quite say that because I don't know that much about the Battletech um, universe and. I'm assuming they're, they're doing well, but obviously I think if that is the case, then I think they're probably doing well because of the, the increased um, uh, availability of fan fiction, of people of encouraging the fan fiction of, of those fans who, who love playing in that universe and like that universe, even if they're, they've never played in it because, of course, the big thing, one of the things with Battletech is that they actually have published books in that universe. Now, Starfleet Universe, you know, that is close to Star Trek, but not, it's almost kind of <laughs> Star Trek adjacent, <laughs> that kind of idea. Um, but it is what it is. Um, I, if, I think if, if you ever tried to, you know, if ADB ever tried to do that with SFU, I think that 
run afoul of um, Paramount overall. So anyway, with that, I am Paul Franz, and I bid you a good night.